My name's Cameron, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, my role, as Josh mentioned, is specifically over community groups here at the church. Uh, so that's going to come up naturally, you'll see, uh, as we uh, get into the text this morning, uh, but not just yet. To start, um, I just want to confess something, and this is, this is a feeling that probably most people who preach the Bible, whether in a context like this or across a coffee table or whatever, um, feel. But I feel particularly this week um, the weight of being an unqualified messenger for a, for a really tough message. Um, and what I mean is the ideas we're about to discuss, the ideas that Jesus is going to lay out for us, um, are so beautiful and lofty um, that I, I doubt I'll ever be fit to share them without feeling like a bit of a hypocrite. Um, so don't take my presentation of this as some sort of Im implicit thing where I've got it all figured out because it's absolutely not the case. Uh, and yet, and yet, God has spoken in his word and uh, we all have to listen and we all become accountable to it this morning. Um, so that said, we're continuing our three-week exploration of the Christian life together, Christian community. Um, what does it mean for Christians to be called into a community? And what does it look like? Uh, last week, Josh started us off with an exploration of the idea of the church as the body of Christ made up of multiple members, the emphasis really being that the necessary role that we all play, every one of us who's been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, has something meaningful, significant, and necessary to contribute to the healthy functioning of the church. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about the image of church as a family. Church is a family. Um, now, when I say church is a family or the church ought to be like a family, different react just when I said that, different reactions just got sparked around the room, uh, largely based on our previous experiences. And so for some of you, um, family is a concept mostly associated with nuisances. You know, it, it's mostly associated with sort of petty, petty arguments and awkward Thanksgiving dinner table conversations with aunts and uncles that you just hope the conversation doesn't turn political and then it does and it's weird. Um, but a nuisance. A frustration we're forced to endure mostly at holidays. Uh, perhaps some of you have come to Portland to flee family. Um, surprisingly common tale. Uh, for others, um, it's just a painful concept in a way that, that goes beyond a mere nuisance. But because it's associated with a history of abuse, perhaps neglect, pervasive, serious, deep conflict, maybe abandonment or the dissolvement of relationships, uh, when you think about family, it it's just conjures immediately pain for you. Um, for others, it's, it's, we might not characterize it this way, but it might be a bit of an idol. The one thing that we feel that if, if we have it dialed in in the way that sort of culture or media or church encourages us to, uh, only then will we feel satisfied, only then will we be uh, complete, only then will we find kind of a sense of joy and satisfaction in life. Um, so an idol. Lastly, 
There are probably other options, but lastly, for our purposes, uh, there are some unicorns out here in the midst of us for whom the idea just is healthy. You just, your experiences are healthy. And, ho- and, and I don't mean that jokingly. I think, seriously, some of you have healthy families, not perfect families. Probably none of us have perfect families, but healthy families. So when we talk about this idea, you can quickly go, okay, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And praise God for that. Praise God for that. But it's not just our association with family that could make this, what Jesus has for us, rub up against us in kind of a grating way. It's also, um, it also factors into our, our previous experiences with church. So it's, it's one thing um, for Jesus and the biblical authors to, to draw up this beautiful picture of the Christian life together. Um, but we might be inclined to roll our eyes or, or clinch our fists. Uh, because, yeah, that's all nice. Those are nice words, uh, but your experience has not been that. Maybe your church experience has been the opposite of healthy family. Maybe it, too, has been littered with abuse, neglect, frustration, nuisance, what have you. So wherever you're coming from, I think we would do well to start by just asking the Lord to help us just kind of clear out some of that debris, not to forget those experiences, uh, but to help us put them in the proper place so we can come to what Jesus is, is saying uh, with, with the eyes that are required. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the vision you have for us for Christian community. Lord, it is lofty. It's big. It's intimidating. It's sometimes scary. Uh, And Lord, sometimes it is unapproachable because the metaphors and images you use to describe it are often tainted for us, Lord. Uh, So we just ask for you to clear all that away out of our minds and our hearts, Lord, not to forget, not to act like those experiences haven't happened, Lord, but to place them properly somewhere where where they're not allowed to, to hinder what you would have for us. We ask that your vision of church would shape Door of Hope, Lord, not ours, not mine, but yours. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I realize I forgot to start my timer. You guys will really appreciate it if I do start it. Um, well, we're going to be in Mark 10, verse 28. If you have your Bible, turn there. Mark 10, verse 28. And just to give you a little bit of context, we're coming off of the story of Jesus with the rich young ruler here in Mark. Uh, in short, it's a guy who was rich, who was young, who was a ruler, who comes up to Jesus, and uh, he has questions for Jesus. He recognizes Jesus' kind of spiritual authority, uh, and he has questions about what, how does one uh, attain eternal life? How does one get in right relationship with God? And so he asks Jesus this, and Jesus turns the question around and says, well, uh, basically, you just need to keep the law. And interestingly, the man responds, well, yeah, I've done that. I've kept the law. And Jesus doesn't challenge him. I'm sure uh, it's no doubt Jesus could have poked holes in that had he wanted to, but that wasn't Jesus' agenda. He kind of said, okay, you've kept the law, fair enough. Uh, But Jesus, it says, loving this man, um, we're led to infer he could see into this man's heart and discern the one thing that was going to hinder this man's discipleship. There was one thing, though he'd kept all these other laws, there was one thing that if this man didn't address this man would never be able to follow after him. 
And so he gives this man a command that's not found elsewhere in the law. He says, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the man can't do it. It says he goes away sad. He goes away sad. And so the next section uh, is the disciples kind of processing this, this conversation that's just happened. They're like, okay, what do we, how do we make sense of this? Um, they're talking about, how, well, how hard is it for somebody to enter the kingdom if those are the circumstances? And uh, we eventually get to verse 28, where Peter kind of inserts a classic Peterism, you know, like a boneheaded statement, I think. That's how it reads to me. Verse 28. So Peter began to say to him, to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So I see two big observations from this response of Jesus. The first is this. The gospel can bring serious cost to your family. It can bring great familial cost. So Peter points out, and Jesus doesn't dispute him, that these disciples have left everything to follow him. And it's Sadly, a reality that Jesus acknowledges that faithfulness to Jesus and the gospel can drive wedges between human relationships, even family relationships. And this kind of can come two primary ways. The first is the less serious. It's kind of what Peter's experienced. Peter and the guys are fishing. Jesus comes up. He calls them. They drop their nets. They go with Jesus, and they're with him for this sort of like couple-year itinerant ministry. So, they're not called to leave their families. They're, they are in the short term, but Peter still has his family. He's going to return to. He probably did return to intermittently. So that's one sense, kind of this limited, controlled, um, specific season of I need to go and do this ministry that Jesus is calling me to. But there's a second, far more painful and serious way that this is also true. Sometimes it's the result of rejection from the family. Joseph Hellerman, a New Testament scholar, says this. He's done a lot of work studying kind of family in the New Testament world. He says, The persecutions forced Christians in various regions of the empire to choose between loyalty to God's family and loyalty to their families of origin. Pagans begged family members who had converted to Christ to denounce their allegiance to the gospel and to God's people in the face of persecution. A choice had to be made. And to understand the weight of that, we have to just understand a few brief points about the way family was understood in the first century. So four points. You can jot them down if you're taking notes. Number one, the standard way family operated was that through the father's bloodline, the family was everyone's primary relational allegiance and source of identity. So the group that you committed yourself to relationally over against any other was the family. And you derived your identity, who I am from it. In fact, the father's characteristics were often assumed to be the case about the children. Number two, the family came first. People regularly placed the good of the family over their own personal desires and goals. 
This is why things like arranged marriage could function in this society, because the question wasn't, who will be my marital partner that can make me most happy? It was, who's best, what marital partner will be in the best interest of my larger family unit? I don't know. I guess I'll just let my parents pick them. That's, that's the logic there. Number three, the closest same-generation family bond was between siblings, brothers and sisters. Fascinatingly, even in many, many cases, more so than the spousal relationship. The brother-sister relationship through the father's bloodline was the closest relationship at the time. And then fourth, the family provided the surest basis for security and stability, both relational and financial economic stability. So once again, we return to this idea that you've got a, a, a per, an individual, a person, who comes to faith in Jesus, and later on, once church history gets underway, the persecution begins to ramp up. And you can quickly see the tensions that amount. So you've got a father looking at a child going, don't follow this Jesus stuff. You will bring shame to the family. You will potentially bring violence into the family. You make our whole family a target of this persecution. Uh, you will be actively disrespecting the, the religious identity that has already been established by the parents in this family. And so on and so forth. From the other angle, by following Jesus and being risk, and risk being kicked out of the family unit, you essentially are being asked to forego all of this. Your deepest sources of relationship, identity, and security stripped from you for trusting the gospel and following after Jesus. Jesus had a lot of harsh words along these lines. Hear the force of what he said in Matthew 12 now with this understanding in the background. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That is controversial in this day. This is not to say that the Bible doesn't value natural families. We only have to think about the vision and commands about honoring parents, uh, the lofty vision of marriage laid out in the New Testament, uh, commands around caring for your children and extended family. I mean, don't hear this as a, okay, natural family doesn't matter. That's clearly not the case. That's just the topic of another sermon. For our purposes, the point is that the natural family does not take supreme precedence over the family of God. Even just to, I'd just like to acknowledge, I mean, one of the great joys of my job at the church is I get to meet with a lot of you, and the first time I typically meet with somebody, I just like to ask, give me your story, and we talk through that. It's surprising how many of you in this room have had real strife injected into your family relationships by your decision to follow Jesus. And I just want to say I'm sorry. That's not the way it's supposed to be. But this reality that Jesus is talking about is not simply a first century Israel issue. This is, this is a live one in 2018. Many of you are feeling that weight right now. I'm sorry. So if the first observation is that the gospel can bring serious 
serious strife to families. The second is this, that the gospel also brings new family gain. There's new gain. Let's go back to that passage. So we've mostly discussed verse 29, people who have left, and just notice all this familial language, house, brothers, sister, mother, father, children, land. If you've left your family and your home for my sake and for the gospel, there's no one who's done that, he says, who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. So there's two words that really jump out, or phrases that really jump out to me here. First, hundredfold. Jesus promises that all that's been lost by way of these family relationships will be returned a hundred times what's been lost. So it's that that I think typically encourages us as when we read this kind of quickly to kind of, okay, Jesus, see what you're saying, family, probably begin to associate it with like heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, the new creation, the kingdom. Yeah, I think there's some stuff in there about Jesus like giving us homes and like places to live and all the Christians are going to be there, whatever. Uh, But not so fast, not so fast. Because he says, now in this time, What is he talking about? What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Do you see it? You get it? It's the church. It's the church. The church doesn't exist yet. It's waiting for Pentecost, but it's just around the corner. Jesus is foreshadowing the new community that he is going to be crafting and knitting together that's going to be the vehicle for caring for his people uh, for the rest of human history until the kingdom comes. These family kinds of relationships are what the church is supposed to consist of. What Jesus is getting at is that Christians are united by something thicker than blood. It doesn't spell it out here, but it doesn't take much imagination to go, okay, well, Christians all are indwelt by the very Holy Spirit of God at work within us. We all have a surpassing allegiance to King Jesus and his kingdom purposes. We're all on board, hopefully, with the common purpose and commitment to Jesus' mission to draw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. And we could go on and on and on. It's a new family that Jesus is building. Not just as a cute term, but that's meant to actually replace what can be lost when families get divided over the gospel. That's deep. And this language is so easy to just gloss over. I mean, how many times do we read through Paul's letters and he's using this familiar... For for example, in Paul's letters... He uses the terms brothers, sisters in the church context 139 times. Paul uses father 63 times, heir or inherit 19 times, sons 17 times, child or children 39 times. The main image of the church, I think, in the New Testament is family. 
And how easy do we we just gloss over that? But remember, brothers and sisters, if that's the chief language Paul uses, he's tapping into the, the common cultural idea that this is the closest sense of relational closeness that anyone has. That's how he chooses to describe the church. So reading back into this, the biblical vision for the church in, involves the provision of all that can be lost by rejection from your natural family, a new source for relational allegiance and identity, a new basis for security and stability, both relational, even financial, economic, new brothers and sisters. And I hope that term will start to hit us all a little more deeply now. At this point, you might be feeling a bit uncomfortable. I think N.T. Wright puts it really well, at least my own feelings, when he says this. This is from uh, Simply Christian. He says, we've been so soaked in the individualism of modern Western culture that we feel threatened by the idea of our primary identity being that of the family we belong to, especially when the family in question is so large, stretching across space and time. The church isn't simply a collection of isolated individuals all following their own pathways of spiritual growth without much reference to one another. It may sometimes look like that, even feel like that. And it's gloriously true that each of us is called to respond to God's call at a personal level. But you can hide in the shadows at the back of church for a while, but sooner or later you will have to decide whether this is for you or not. He puts that really, really well. So that's the big picture vision. And I think it makes two big claims on us as Door of Hope. The first is this. It is a call to radical loyalty to your church family. In other words, it's a call to embrace your spiritual brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters. This is going to be the cheesiest thing that's probably ever happened in the history of Door of Hope in this room. But here's the dividing line right here. If you're on this side of the room, I want you to look over this way. If you're on this side of the room, I want you to look over this way. And look at somebody in the eye across the room. Even if they're not looking in your eye. It doesn't have to be a super weird thing. Just a minimally weird thing. But look, look across the room. Hold it, hold it. Jesus declares these are your brothers and sisters. Hold it. No, I'm just kidding. You can stop. <laughs> Let's not get that weird. But in all seriousness, if ever, everyone in this room that does in fact follow Jesus, has in fact been indwelt by the Spirit, is part of the family. Is part of the family. John addresses this idea in really harsh terms, uh, but we should read it. In 1 John 4, 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There's, there's something deeply intertwined about love for God and love for your fellow Christian that the, 
the violation of one sheds bad light on the other. The call to love the brother, love the sister, is one of the most fundamental and primary ways we express our love to God. You know, there's a, feels like in a really healthy way, there's a good kind of just in the air and listening to podcasts, reading books, articles, conversations. There's just a really healthy, it feels like, reclamation of kind of the New Testament vision for a more diverse church across all kinds of lines, racially, socioeconomically, according to age, background, interest, whatever, to see the gospel hopefully transcend these barriers that for so much of human history have kept people separated. If there's anything that can, can transcend those barriers, it ought to be the gospel. And the church ought to be the place where we see it. But it's one thing to voice that desire to see that. It's another thing when we actually find ourselves in close proximity to those that don't see things like we do in the church, that don't vote like we do, that are older or younger, completely different experiences that color the way they see the world. It's much easier to just slip out the back and say, no, that church was too full of people X, Y, Z. I want a more authentic church. I want a more welcoming church. But the diverse, welcoming church community begins only when each individual, each person, personally engages the people that they find difficult and challenging and frustrating and awkward and becomes personally welcoming. And not just welcoming, loving. Loving. As Josh reminded us last week, we don't get to pick our family. That goes for our natural families that goes just as much for our spiritual family. We don't get to pick them. We are in it together, tethered together by the purposes of God, and nothing can break that. If, if, if one thing is a clear application of this, I hope it's this, that this does not happen in a top-down way. This vision of spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood and motherhood and fatherhood and all these things, it's not something, though we might like it to be, it's not something that can be accomplished by the pastors or elders of a church. So often we, we, we hear these commands, and we say, okay, well, I'm glad that we have some professional people on staff that we're paying to free up their calendars so that they can go and be spiritual brothers and sisters to the rest of the body. As a pastor at this church, am I obligated to do this? Yes. I am your spiritual brother, your spiritual father maybe to some of you, certainly a spiritual child to many of you. But the vision can only be completed by the whole body participating. The whole family has to be engaged. This is not a top-down uh, idea or concept here. This is member-to-member person to person, one to another, brother to sister kind of dynamic. You see that? One person can't, or ten people, can't possibly fulfill this vision when you've got a congregation of a thousand plus people calling this community home. So each of us must be the kinds of people that are 
opening our homes, our schedules, our loyalties, our friendships, our time, our energy, our frustrations to others in the family. So that's the first call. To you, whoever you are, as an individual person, you are called to radical loyalty to your church family. To care. To care and to engage. But it cuts a second way, too. But the first has to happen before the second can happen. And that is that hopefully, it's not just a call to do, to do this hard work. It's a call to come and receive that. Right? It's a call to come and receive. It's an offer of radical loyalty from your church family to you. In other words, it's a call to come and experience your spiritual brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters. Hear this verse again. There is no one who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. With persecutions, Jesus isn't unrealistic here. It's not all going to be a cakewalk. Persecutions will come. And in the age to come, by the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross, so will eternal life come in the age to come. But this promise is another answer to the problem that's been, that was part of humanity inherently at the beginning when God created Adam, that it's not good for man to be alone. The church community is an answer, a partial answer to that problem. And this idea just makes me think of all kinds of different people. Probably every one of us, this is kind of rubbing up against some area of, of difficulty or, or pain in your life. But I, I, think of a, I thought of a few that I might just throw out there um, that were kind of on my heart. Number one, I think of friends who have lost relationship one way or another with, uh, with their own parents. Maybe through death, maybe through distance, maybe through the gospel, I don't know. Maybe a relational wound of some kind, but this passage says to come and find spiritual fathers and mothers amongst God's people. To find that kind of relationship here. I think of some of my single friends who've desired marriage for a long time. Not all my single friends desire marriage, nor should they all. But ones who have, who've been living faithfully in a culture that does not know how to create or value intimacy that isn't sexual. To you, this passage says, come and find brothers and sisters. In the, in the first century sense, brothers and sisters here amongst God's people. I think of married friends who've wanted to but have been unable to conceive children for whatever reason. Though I seriously continue to pray and hope that you'll get children, I think this passage also says, come and be a spiritual mother or a spiritual father to children here that need more spirit-filled, safe adults to invest in them and to love on them. The children's ministry is an incredibly 
like well set up opportunity to do that, but even transcending that, just getting to know families and spending time in one another's homes. And gosh, none of us know how to raise kids. <laughs> so crazy. And we need one another. We need additional spiritual parents to help nurture our kids. I think of some of my gay or same-sex attracted friends. A few of you here at Door of Hope who've wrestled with your sexuality, wrestled through the Bible and Christian theology. You've decided to courageously follow after the historic Christian vision for sexuality. Maybe when you started wrestling through this and identifying this and you needed to start processing and talking about it, maybe you're rejected by your family. I said, no, we don't talk about that. And that's not a welcome struggle here. We won't be having that conversation. And then maybe as you've decided to, to lean into what Jesus has to teach about these matters, you found yourself rejected by the broader LGBT community for deciding to follow the way of Jesus. Where do you go? This passage says, come and find a family. Come and find a home. I think of our new brothers and sisters at Door of Hope from Redeemer today. For those of us that know, love, and follow Jesus, we are family. And now we get the honor of getting to know our family, tangibly be family to one another, in a way that we couldn't previously. I think that's what a local church is. All this family language is true for every Christian across time and across the globe right now. I don't know how to tangibly and helpfully be a brother to Christians living in China right now. I think the local church is, is a way to gather a subset of the universal family. It's almost like the nuclear family and the rest of the church is the extended family. But here at a local church, we can actually be this in tangible ways. And it becomes a witness to the watching world that these people are different and that this Jesus is real. So I'm the pastor of community groups. I think I would be missing some low-hanging fruit here if I, didn't, if I didn't rope that in at this point. To be in these kinds of relationships that I think Jesus envisions, that Paul envisioned, it requires closeness. It requires proximity. We believe Sunday is vitally important for the church. We believe it's biblical. We believe what we do here really matters substantially. But we don't believe this is the fullness of the church. The kinds of relationships that Jesus is talking about that can actually take the hit of people being severed from their families cannot happen by us entering into a thousand-person auditorium and listening to some things for a while and then leaving. It requires an intentional commitment to get close. And there are all kinds of ways that happens around the church. Some of you have started amazing ministries that are getting people together and doing this. We've got everything from the children's ministry, youth ministry, uh, service, service opportunities to get all these things are helping build this. But I can think of none more suited, uh, more naturally suited to this end than community group. It's the reason we have community group. 
I love what G.K. Chesterton said in, uh, in his book, Heretics, in one of the essays there. He says this, the man who lives in a small community lives in a much larger world. He knows much more of the fierce varieties and uncompromising divergences of men. The reason is obvious. In a large community, we can choose our companions. In small community, our companions are chosen for us. The world becomes larger when you have to actually find yourself bound to people you wouldn't normally or naturally find yourself bound to if it were up to you. I think community groups are perhaps our best shot at forming these kinds of relationships broadly across Door of Hope. So what happens in a community group? Number one, strangers come together. Someone opens up their home, strangers, we have some leaders, kind of facilitate. People come together who are strangers at first, but they're not strangers. It's family, reunited. And for the first time, you have the opportunity to build something substantial relationally with this person that you wouldn't have otherwise. Reminds me of like, you know, there's all this craze about these like, what's it called, 23andMe? Is that what it's called? The genetic testing thing? What's, what's the 23 one's name? I should have researched this. Nobody knows. Oh, it's right. Perfect. All the genetic tests, there's these heartwarming stories. Mark was sharing this with me, and I went and looked into it. There are all these stories of people doing these genetic tests and finding out that they have like these long-lost siblings. Sometimes that's really painful. You can unearth a whole other you know, set of questions. But there's this really beautiful, really beautiful thing that happens where these two strangers come together and realize, you are my brother. You are my sister. We are family. We didn't know. Now we know, and now we can do something about it. And I think that's just this beautiful little picture. If we conceive of it rightly, of what happens every time people come together in a community group setting. Like long-lost siblings rediscovered. And what we do is we just do what the earliest church did. When we read Acts 2, like after Pentecost, it says they were meeting, yes, in the temple, big group, gathering, worshiping, but then they were meeting in house to house, devoted to fellowship, breaking bread together, devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to prayer, caring for one another's needs as they arose, serving together. And we just kind of think like there's some strange alchemy that happens when you get people to commit to that over a decent enough amount of time that relationship can just happen. When else do we commit that kind of intentionality to other people in our lives? I can think of almost no other settings for me personally. This family idea is also why just the model of community groups we do is why we encourage groups to reshuffle periodically. I mean, every, there's not a guarantee that after the one year that groups will continue. We think that's a good thing because you develop this kind of closeness. Uh, if you need it for another year or two, that's fine. But we like to see people reshuffling and going through that experience with others. Guys, if you, imagine doing that for 10 years. If you go at that depth, five, six, seven, eight different groups of people, how small a room like this would feel. And what a network of people that you trust and know when crisis hits, when you're lonely, we need someone to process with, we need someone to confess your sin to, we need someone to wrestle through something with. They're there and they're trusted. That's the heart of it. There might be some new Christian book that comes out next year that's got some new model for some other way to get people in these kinds of relationships. Maybe we'll do that. We're not married to the format of community groups, but we think 
right now, this is the best shot we have at getting people in the close enough proximity where we can actually live out what Jesus is calling us to. It's the reason why Todd, I, mean, some of you, I don't know if the parents know yet, but Todd is hoping with even the uh, middle school and high school to get community groups going for our kids. And I can already, I, I know, it's like my kid's a few years off from that, but like, huh, that's going to be hard on a family to get my kid there. But this is what we're trying to build. Even as early as seventh grade, the kinds of relationships where these kids are committed to one another and view them as their spiritual family, intending to do spiritual good to one another as they grow toward Christ-likeness. Isn't that beautiful? I hope that, I hope that comes together. plea is this, though. To make all this happen, we need people. And we need homes, and we need leaders. And there's a process for getting people up and going that we stick to, but it feels like an appropriate time to say, if you're someone who's led in the past, or someone we've reached out to as a potential future leader, um, we need you. We need homes. We need contexts where people can come and gather together and do this in the hope that broadly Door of Hope might be the kind of church that looks like that. I, of course, know every season is not the right season to host or even participate in community group. There's always challenges and very sympathetic to those. But I suppose right now, one point of application, if you're, if you're someone we've identified as a potential leader, is just to once again pray and think through, do you have the margin to sacrifice this kind of time and energy and personal space to do this. Secondly, for everyone in the room, we just it's a plea to join one. We're going to do sign-ups in two Sundays, two weeks they'll start. And as long as there's groups of space, there will be time to sign up. The window doesn't close. Um, but I know there are some of you that have been around the church for a while and you're, you've never joined a community group because you're like, man, that is going to be intimate and weird and awkward. And to you I say, oh, yes, it will. Oh, yes, it will. At least at first. Not every group ends up clicking. You've probably all got stories of group not getting to that level where you feel like, man, I, really, I don't really know anybody still. That happens. But more often than not, you get people together, start sharing life, telling stories, discussing the scripture, praying together, watching one another's kids. Something beautiful starts to happen. And you do it again and again and again. And this becomes not just the Sunday, it becomes not just a gathering of strangers, but this becomes a family reunion, doesn't it? That's what we're after. 